Tune Review puts Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com or by calling 0141 772 3976. That's 0141 772 3976. This is from The National on Friday the 3rd of November 2023. From the news section. Scotland can be at the centre of creating nuclear weapon-free Europe. This article is written by Hamish Morrison. Scotland should be at the centre of the global discussion about getting rid of nuclear weapons, according to a campaigning anti-nuke MSP. Bill Kidd welcomed Melissa Park, a former United Nations legal expert, who has recently been appointed Executive Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, to the Holyrood Chamber on Thursday. The SNP MSP led a members' debate on nuclear disarmament, in which he argued that Scotland could play a central, crucial role in establishing a nuclear weapons-free Europe. Kidd said, I believe that Scotland is uniquely placed to play a central, crucial role in furthering the work that has already been done in ridding our planet of the threat of nuclear weapons and promoting global security. And, to that end, I believe that the time is right to begin serious discussion on the framework for establishing a nuclear weapons-free Europe, a discussion with Scotland at its centre. This Saturday, Glasgow welcomed Scotland's first Festival for Survival, organised by Scottish CND, to explore the link between nuclear weapons and climate change and will include speakers from across the political spectrum and civic society. The festival will also look to examine the role we can play in an era of global crisis by showing how campaigns, progressive foreign policy and expertise based in Scotland can take the agenda for peace, disarmament and climate justice forward. For me, part of this agenda is starting the process to establishing a nuclear weapons-free Europe and it is my wish that in today's debate the ideas of others and the response of the government can come together to inform and shape where we go from here to make this wish reality. Stephen Kerr, the Conservative MSP for Central Scotland region, argued for the UK to retain its nuclear weapons, which he said acted as a deterrent against aggression from hostile states such as Russia. He argued Ukraine's nuclear disarmament in 1994 meant Russia was able to invade without the risk of nuclear retaliation. Kerr said, Vladimir Putin has made no secret of his detestation of our country, of the West 
and we have seen the lengths to which he's prepared to go to undermine the West, to undermine Ukraine, to attempt to obliterate Ukraine as a sovereign nation. We, in the United Kingdom, must never put ourselves in a position where we are defenceless. Our insurance in the nuclear deterrent is based upon reality and not some desirable fantasy. That article was written by Hamish Morrison. This is from The National on Friday the 3rd of November 2023, from the Politics section. Scottish Independence Paper to set out fair vision for migration policy. This article is written by Abby Garton Crosby. The next Independence White Paper will set out the Scottish Government's vision for a migration system based on dignity, fairness and respect. Today, Friday, ministers will publish the sixth paper in the Building a New Scotland series, focusing on the importance of immigrants to the country and setting out a different approach to the current hostile environment purported by Westminster. The Scottish Government has long called for immigration to be devolved to attract more working-age people to the country and help pay for the ageing population via taxes. The latest paper is expected to set out how Scotland can benefit both socially and economically from increased migration. The new independence blueprint will be launched in Dundee by Social Justice Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville, Independence Minister Jamie Hepburn and Migration Minister Emma Roddick on Friday. Ahead of the announcement, Somerville said the paper would lay out new Scottish Government agencies and visa routes that would help to attract people to the country. People who come to live and work in Scotland are vital to our country's future, not only for the contribution they make to our culture and communities, but also for supporting economic growth and sustaining public services, she said. The proposals in this paper, including two visa routes and agencies, would support people with a wide range of skills to make Scotland their home. Independence is essential in order to get the powers Scotland needs to build a migration system that works for every part of our country and which has dignity, fairness and respect at its core. The UK government's Brexit policy and its approach to migration and asylum do not reflect the attitudes of most people in Scotland and are damaging our economy. We need to boost our working population, not reduce it. Under current constitutional arrangements, Scotland's population is projected to fall, so I look forward to discussing the opportunities that independence and control of migration policy will bring. The latest census figures reveal that while Scotland's population had grown to a record number without migration, the population of Scotland would have decreased by around 49,800 since 2011. It also revealed an ageing population, with First Minister Humza Yousaf stating that reversing overall population decline could be achieved by independence. I am in no doubt that alongside the climate crisis, the challenges of an ageing population are among the biggest issues future generations will face in Scotland, unless action is taken today, Yousaf said in July. Migration is currently reserved to Westminster, 
with policy differences between the two governments previously causing friction. In early 2020, then First Minister Nicola Sturgeon called for a separate visa system north of the border to address demographic issues, a call that was rejected just hours after it was made. However, recent polling showed that Scots are broadly comfortable with migration and almost three-fifths believes it has a positive impact on the country. A UK government spokesperson said, Our points-based system rightly prioritises the skills we already have in the UK, while attracting the talent our economy needs to grow. It is broader than the previous immigration system, with many more jobs now eligible, stretching across all key sectors of the British economy. Immigration is a reserved matter for the UK government and the points-based system works in the interests of the whole of the UK. That article was written by Abby Garton Crosby. This is from The National on Friday the 3rd of November 2023 from the News section. Shell faces backlash after recording immoral profits. This article is written by Adam Robertson. The Scottish Greens have hit out at Shell after the oil and gas giant said adjusted profits came in at $6.2 billion, that's £5.1 billion, during the three months to the end of September. That was up from $5 billion it had reported for the second quarter of its financial year but below the $9.45 billion achieved in the same period last year, when gas and oil prices were elevated by the immediate effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. However, oil and gas giants continue to come under pressure from climate campaigners as they are accused of fuelling the destruction of the planet. Scottish Greens MSP Mark Ruskell said, these grotesque and immoral profits are fueling the destruction of our planet and burning away our future. We have all seen the awful impact of climate chaos, with horrific wildfires all over Europe and terrible flooding across Scotland. Things have rarely been better for oil and gas company bosses, but our environment can't cope with their drive for endless oil and gas extraction. It is doing terrible damage here, and around the world, and it will have a devastating impact for generations to come. He added that a windfall tax, full of loopholes, did not go far enough to help tackle climate change. If Shell bosses have any concern about the future of our planet, then they must surely invest these astronomical profits in transforming our energy system and ensuring fair and just transition to renewables. Shell's chief executive, Whale Sarwan, said the company had delivered another quarter of strong operational and financial performance, capturing opportunities in volatile commodity markets. We continue to simplify our portfolio while delivering more value with less emissions. The profit numbers attracted similar criticism to that which was aimed at its UK-based rival BP earlier this week. Elsewhere, Unite Union's General Secretary, Sharon Graham, was among those to criticise Shell. She said, 
It's time to stop companies like Shell making a killing at our expense. Profiteering on this magnitude is one of the greatest scandals of our time. It is crippling our communities and what remains of our industrial base. Energy privatisation has failed, pure and simple. Jonathan Narona Gant, senior campaigner at climate justice group Global Witness, added, Shell's shareholders remain some of the biggest winners of Russia's brutal war in Ukraine and ongoing global instability. The turmoil in fossil fuel markets allows Shell to rake in enormous profits, but instead of investing in clean energy, the company has doubled down on oil, gas and shareholder payouts. That article was written by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Friday the 3rd of November 2023 from the news section. WWE wrestler Grayson Waller says all Scottish women look like Shrek by the Joker. A WWE wrestler has claimed that all Scottish women look and talk like Shrek. Grayson Waller, an Australian WWE performer, posted a picture of himself on Twitter with the caption, Scotland is great. It's dark before 5pm, freezing cold, and all the women look and talk like Shrek. A few days earlier, he posted a video of himself complaining about being sent to the UK by WWE. For the second time this year, the WWE is sending me to the UK. I don't think people realise what a hole the UK really is. I already did it. I went to Money in the Bank, I went to London, and now they're sending me back to that absolute cesspool, and it's not even summer anymore. So it's going to be freezing cold. Then they're sending me to Nottingham, which I didn't even know was a real place. And then Scotland. I can't even understand what the people there say. It's like they're speaking a different language. A bunch of aliens. But never mind the fact they're sending me to the UK during Halloween, the best holiday of the year. So instead of celebrating Halloween with a bunch of nines and tens in very good-looking sexy costumes, I'm going to go to the UK with a bunch of actual ghouls and goblins. I'm going to be walking the streets, thinking people are in scary costumes but that's actually what people in the UK look like. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. The feeling may very well be mutual, Grayson. Currently known as one of WWE's most important prominent heels, Waller has previously come under fire for criticising pop star Taylor Swift and her fans. That article was written by The Joker. This is from The National on Monday 6th November 2023 from the news section DWP winter fuel payments begin this month are you eligible by Joshua Searle eligible homes across the UK will begin receiving cost of living support in the form of winter fuel payments from the department for work and pensions or DWP this month the payments can provide a much-needed boost for pensioners as the colder months roll in and the time comes to crank up the heating. Millions of eligible households will have received a letter informing them of how much their winter fuel payments will be worth 
and which bank account it will be paid into already. Most payments will be made between November and December. However, if you have not received a letter or payment by January 26, 2024, and believe you are eligible for the support, you should contact the Winter Fuel Payment Centre. This is everything you need to know about winter fuel payments in 2023-24. Am I eligible for a winter fuel payment? You can get a winter fuel payment if you were born before September 25th, 1957. You will usually need to live in the UK, although some circumstances may mean you're eligible if you live abroad. You will not be eligible if any of the following apply to you. Have you been in hospital getting free treatment for more than a year? If you need permission to enter the UK and your granted leave says you cannot claim public funds? Or were in prison for the whole of the week of 18th to 24th September 2023? And those living in care homes will be eligible unless both of the following apply. You get pension credit, income support, income-based job seekers allowance or income-related employment and support allowance. And you lived in a care home for the whole time from June 26th to September 24th, 2023. How much is the winter fuel payment? UK government guidance states you'll get a letter in October or November telling you how much the winter fuel payment you'll get if you're eligible. If you do not get a letter but think you are eligible, check if you need to make a claim. The amount you get is based on when you were born and your circumstances between September 18th to 24, 2023. This is called the qualifying week. This is how much you could be paid depending on your circumstances. I live alone or with no one else eligible for winter fuel payment. £500 if you were born between 25th September 1943 and 24th September 1957. Or £600 if you were born before September 25th 1943. I live with someone else eligible for winter fuel payment. If you receive pension credit, GSA, ESA or income support, you will get £500 if both of you were born between 24, 25th September 1943 and 24th September 1957 or £600 if one or both of you were born before 25th September 1943. If you receive none of the above benefits, you will receive £250 if you and the person you live with were both born between 25th September 1943 and 24th September 1957. £250 if you were born between 25th September 1943 and 24th September 1957, but the person you live with was born before 25th September 1943. £350 if you were born before 25th September 1943 
but the person you live with was born between 25th September 1943 and 24th September 1957. £300 if you and the person you live with were both born before 25th September 1943. I live in a care home. £250 if you were born between 25th September 1943 and 24th September 1957 or £300 if you were born before 25th September 1943. That article was by Joshua Searle. This is from The National on Monday 6th November 2023. From the news section. Nidri bonfire night. Fire crews and police officers attacked. By Adam Robertson. The First Minister has condemned disgraceful bonfire night scenes across Scotland as police faced unprecedented levels of violence. Fire crews were attacked and eight police officers injured in bonfire night disorder, which saw petrol bombs and fireworks thrown at riot police in Edinburgh. Around 100 youths gathered on Hay Avenue in Nidri, Edinburgh, just before 5pm on Sunday, in a repeat of disorder seen last year in the neighbourhood. Writing on Twitter X, Hamza Youssef said, Disgraceful scenes of fireworks misuse across some areas of Scotland last night, particularly in Nidri. I pay tribute to at Fire Scott and at Police Scotland officers who should not be targeted and attacked for doing their job. Those responsible should feel the full force of the law. Officers were also called to incidents in Dundee and Glasgow with eight officers in Glasgow and Edinburgh injured. The Scottish Fire and Rescue Service, meanwhile, said there were nine attacks on its crews during an eight-hour period, which saw crews bombed with fireworks and bricks. No firefighters were injured. However, a fire appliance in West Lothian had a windscreen smashed by a brick and had to be removed from operational service. Police Scotland Assistant Chief Constable Tim Mayers said that while the majority of Scotland enjoyed bonfire night, Police Scotland officers were subjected to unprecedented levels of violence. A minority of individuals have been responsible for an unacceptable and frankly disgusting level of disorder that left communities alarmed and police officers injured. The violent nature of the situation witnessed in the Nidri area of Edinburgh is extremely concerning, not least because it's believed young people were being actively encouraged and coordinated by adults to target officers while they carried out their duties. Drone footage from Nidri showed a line of police officers with riot shields standing in front of vans with blue lights flashing. A mob of black-clad youths gathered on grass in front of them and began throwing pyrotechnics. The police made a retreat as a petrol bomb hit the ground in front of them and fireworks exploded. The assault continued 
with petrol bombs and fireworks forcing police to shuffle backwards. The officers then ran at the assailants in footage filmed from a nearby sports centre. In Dundee, two police vehicles were struck by bricks in the Bewley Square area, while in Glasgow, police received a report of two separate groups of youths fighting and throwing fireworks at one another in Barmulloch. Police Scotland said there were a small number of arrests made with further arrests anticipated to follow in the coming days as investigations continue. In 2018, Police Scotland set up Operation Moonbeam to tackle bonfire night disorder. Last year in Nidri, motorbike gangs terrorised the neighbourhood on bonfire night while fireworks were thrown on the ground. On Halloween this year, riot police attended Kirkton, Dundee, after children reportedly as young as 10 set off fireworks. Andy Watt, SFRS Assistant Chief Officer, said, Attacks on our firefighters are completely unacceptable. Our staff should be able to carry out their role without being attacked. It is disappointing that people have tried to hurt firefighters and have damaged our appliances. This type of behaviour not only prevents our crews from bringing any emergency to a safe and swift conclusion, but it can impact on our emergency service colleagues, including the police, when they are supporting us on a scene to ensure the safety of our personnel. SFRS received more than 892 calls from the public and Operations Control mobilised firefighters to approximately 355 bonfires across the country between 3.30pm and midnight on Sunday, November 5th. Scottish Conservative Justice spokesman Russell Finlay branded the youths in Edinburgh thugs and council leader Cammy Day said their behaviour was disgraceful. Day said, I'm appalled to see the scenes in Nidre this evening. We've been clear that this sort of conduct is unacceptable. We've been working throughout the year in our communities to mitigate bonfire night-related disruption, so it's extremely disappointing to see a minority of people behaving in this way. This reckless behaviour endangers lives and, like the majority, I share in their dismay and upset at this disgraceful behaviour. Finlay added, such attacks on police officers are cowardly, reckless and dangerous. Police Scotland needs sufficient resources to tackle these thugs. That article was by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Monday 6th November 2023 from the politics section. PM must focus on cost of living, not taking tents from homeless. By Laura Pollock. The SNP has said Rishi Sunak must focus on the cost of living, not taking tents away from homeless people on the eve of the King's speech as reports have suggested it includes new powers for police and councils to clear tents put up by homeless people if they're deemed to be a nuisance. 
Downing Street has said the King's speech is to focus on the Prime Minister's priorities of growing the economy, one of his five pledges made to the electorate in January, and safeguarding the UK's energy independence. However, Drew Henry, SNP MP, warned that Westminster is pushing Scots into poverty and leaving millions to fend for themselves as the Tories tank the UK economy and send the cost of living soaring. The SNP's economy spokesperson challenged both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer to back SNP's calls for key cost-of-living powers to be transferred to the Scottish Parliament and for immediate UK government action to help families, including delivering a £400 energy bill rebate, including mortgage interest tax relief and taking action to tackle soaring food prices. Henry said, As millions of families across Scotland see their incomes hammered by the Westminster-made cost-of-living crisis, it beggars belief that the biggest Tory policy announcement ahead of the King's speech is taking tents away from homeless people. Families are suffering as a result of UK government incompetence, but all the Tories have to offer is more attacks on the most vulnerable instead of real help for the majority of families who who are seeing their mortgages, rent, energy bills and cost of living soar through the roof. Rishi Sunak must focus on the cost of living, not taking tents away from homeless people. With neither Sunak nor Starmer willing to offer any real help for families, and both Westminster parties ruling out support for SNP calls for a £400 energy bill rebate, mortgage interest tax relief and action on food prices, it's clear no change is possible under Westminster control. The speech will also ensure the country is fully securing the benefits of Brexit and build a competitive and supportive environment for businesses to capitalise on new technologies officials said. According to the Financial Times, as part of the measures, a civil offence could be established into England and Wales to fine charities found to have given tents to rough sleepers. Home Secretary Soella Braverman, the Cabinet Minister behind the proposals, told Sky News there is no need to live in a tent in Britain in the 21st century. There is a huge amount of resources dedicated to wraparound care for vulnerable people, drug treatment and other forms of treatment to support people to get back on their feet and live fulfilling lives. We need to be clear that the police have requested some of these new powers to enable them to take a robust approach to what can be a very serious criminal behaviour in these instances involving drug use, antisocial behaviour vandalism and threatening behaviour in communities. It's not what our country represents and it's why I'm proposing these measures. That article was by Laura Pollock. From the National, Monday the 6th of November, from the comment section. British values are whatever the Tories want them to be. Article by Steph Payton. What does it mean to undermine the United Kingdom's institutions and values? 
in the eyes of a Conservative government minister, I'm sure the case could be made that any number of democratic movements, from Scotland's campaign for independence to anti-capitalist and trade union organising, would fall under the category of a movement that seeks to fundamentally break and reform the British state. After all, inherent to the philosophies of each are ideas and concepts that run counter to modern Britain's dominant economic and institutional bedrocks, much like marching for Palestine stands in opposition to the current and future government's genocidal foreign policy. Truly, Britain is beset on all sides by critics. But not to worry, it seems the Conservatives have a solution to all dissent found at no man's land between public opinion and government policy. To broaden the definition of extremism to anybody who undermines the country's institutions and values du jour. That is the solution to be found in new proposals from a team of civil servants working for Cabinet Minister Michael Gove. And the great thing about British values, like their oft-referenced cousin, Common Sense, is how nebulous and undefined they are. In their most modern form, British values are whatever the UK government needs to justify its increasingly authoritarian and far-right policy positions. The European Court of Human Rights? That claims Home Secretary Suella Braverman is at odds with British values. Immigration? At odds with British values too. Looking too closely at how the government failed to respond to COVID-19? Oh, what are you? A Soviet spy? The rule of law? Individual liberty, democracy, mutual respect, tolerance and understanding of different faiths and beliefs. These are, according to the Education Act 2002, as part of a commitment to actively promote fundamental British values in schools, the loose values of these islands. There isn't one of these that the Conservatives have not objectively undermined and trod upon in even just recent history. On the rule of law, Boris Johnson's antics are just a blip in the scheme of things. On individual liberty, we have the Conservative government's authoritarian crackdown on the right to protest. On democracy, we must deal with the regressive voter ID laws that disenfranchise many from an electoral system that is already deeply unrepresentative. And as for mutual respect and tolerance of others, where would I even start? The Conservative Party does not care for British values beyond the point that they cease being a rhetorical tool, but they will use them to pick at the scab of colonial nostalgia that has never really healed on these islands. And so these feeble values remain loose and ephemeral, lest any Tory be put in the position of having to explain just how our immigrant neighbours and colleagues supposedly oppose democracy and tolerance. Rather, the UK government acts like Britain stands alone in an apathetic world, when really, Britain has precisely three things worth shouting about to our neighbours, Greg's, driving on the objectively correct side of the road, and the art house horror that is Mr Blobby. A set of ill-defined and often overlooked values doesn't quite meet the list. Case in point, Braverman's recent controversial framing of homelessness as a lifestyle choice during a series of tweets while talking about the compassion of the British people. The pivot from praising public empathy to the sudden justification for home office plans to remove tents from rough sleepers during winter it's enough to give the reader whiplash. The upcoming marches in the opposition to Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Palestine on Armistice Day, too, present a perfect distillation of the government's bad faith approach to its values. I doubt there could be a more symbolic day to march for peace than the day we celebrate and mark the cessation of hostilities on the Western Front of World War One.
yet Conservatives wish to ban these as hate marches, even as Israel displaces millions and leaves dead children among the rubble of Gaza. Thinking of all people who have found themselves targeted by the British state in recent years, immigrants, communists, peace marchers, trade unionists, the transgender community, independent supporters, asylum seekers, environmentalists, the step to identifying such campaigners as undermining the British state is not so little. After all, each represents a challenge to social and economic conservatism, plain and simple. This government has no interest in values, beyond what value can be provided to its shareholders. They have cast among those marching for peace as hate preachers and have sought to limit their abilities to oppose them. Among the organisations that would allegedly fall foul of this reframing of extremism, the Muslim Council of Britain, MCB, Palestine Action and Mend, Muslim Engagement and Development, stand out as markers for the government's true intent. Not an end to extremism, but to opposition, an abject threat to the very values that supposedly define these nations. And that was a comment piece by Steph Payton. From the National, Tuesday the 7th of November, from the comment section, Shona Craven, Suella Braverman knows her harmful words carry weight. This is an opinion piece by Shona Craven, columnist and community editor. Clumsy and crass was the verdict of one Tory MP on Suella Braverman's claim that for some people in the UK, sleeping on the streets was a lifestyle choice. Steve Brine, who chairs Westminster's Health and Social Care Select Committee, must surely know it was nothing of the sort. As ever with the Home Secretary, it was calculated. Braverman knows exactly what she is doing and why. She knows there is a rough slipping crisis coming this winter. She knows because the Home Office she runs is quite deliberately creating it and preparing to lay the blame for it elsewhere. She is banking on the British public not grasping why there are suddenly so many people, non-British people, living on the streets and believing that she had prescient solutions to this unsettling problem. Every time it seems Braverman has positioned herself so far to the right that she can't possibly go any further, she looks the public, British public straight in the eye while taking another sidestep, then cocks her head as if to ask, what are you going to do about it? Not vote Tory would be the obvious answer, but the party is obviously calculating that a pledge to sweep homeless people's tent from pavements will gain electoral support, even if it seems cruelly repellent to most right now. By outrageously framing those living in tents pitched in towns and cities as making a lifestyle choice, she not only attempts to stir up anger and resentment, but, but insults the intelligence of those for whom, from whom she seeks votes. With the ravages of Storms Baba and Kieran still fresh in the memory, and for many an ongoing nightmare as they head into the winter without any access to their homes, who would make the choice to live in a tent? Braverman began a thread of X slash Twitter posts by saying the British people are compassionate and that we will always support those who are genuinely homeless, thus implicitly creating another category of not really homeless people who do not deserve support or compassion. What she presumably means to convey is that these people from abroad are choosing to come here despite being unable to support themselves and are not genuinely homeless because their real home is in another country. Is it a coincidence that she chose to use the word occupied when referring to the tents in a sentence noting that many of them 
the people to be cleared away are from abroad. Perhaps, at a glance, the plans reported at the weekend in the Financial Times, including fining charities for providing tents that are subsequently deemed to represent a public nuisance, look like sticking plaster solutions to chronic problems. Braverman claims that weak policies in places such as San Francisco and Los Angeles have led to an explosion of crime, drug-taking and squalor, but that she's going to step in now to save British cities from the same fate. No doubt the local authorities in California will be slapping their foreheads in dismay when they realise the solution to their problems is to threaten charities with civil penalties for handing out camping gear. But what's coming will be an acute homelessness crisis on top of the existing dire problem that has been exacerbated by the housing and cost of living crises. Braverman knows there will soon be a surge in the number of homeless people from abroad on the streets of the UK. She knows this because it will be caused by the actions of the Home Office for which she is responsible. The decision to quickly clear a backlog of asylum claims by the end of the year may seem, at first glance, positive, as tens of thousands of people are expected to be granted refugee status, but once this decision has been made, they will be forced to quickly leave their temporary accommodation. In Glasgow alone, 1,400 refugees are expected to face sudden homelessness, with grave fears that many will end up sleeping rough in the coldest months of the year. When this happens, the buck will be passed to the local councils that have a duty to provide temporary accommodation to homeless people. No UK government funding has been provided to help with this housing emergency. There will be no levelling up funds. Unsurprisingly, homelessness charities have responded with horror to Braverman's language and her plans. Given the aim of restricting access to tents is to prevent people from aggressively begging, stealing, taking drugs, littering and blighting our communities, what other bans might follow in England? Could it not be argued that donating sleeping bags or even soup to people who are sleeping rough, or even just sitting in the street, is supporting their supposed lifestyle choice and potentially facilitating criminal or antisocial behaviour by people who are desperate, destitute and traumatised? Those who sought refuge in the UK deserve far, far better than to be used as political pawns in this utterly reprehensible way. It's vital the British public are made aware of what's happening, and why, and are not conned into thinking Braverman is on their side. And that was a, a comment piece from The National by Shona Craven. From The National, Wednesday the 8th of November, from the culture section, Carol Vorderman forced to quit BBC show. Article by Steph Braun. Carol Vorderman has been forced to quit her BBC radio show after breaching new guidelines on social media. The 62-year-old Welsh presenter has announced she will be leaving her Saturday morning show on Radio Wales, which she has hosted since 2019. The former Countdown star who has recently been highly critical of the UK government, said in a statement she had breached new guidelines and BBC Wales management had decided she must leave. She was told the new guidelines would apply to all content she posts, despite her show being light-hearted and non-political. Vorderman said she was not prepared to stop criticising the government or express the strong beliefs she holds about the political turmoil the UK is in. In a statement, she said, the BBC recently introduced new social media guidelines, which I respect. However, 
despite my show being light-hearted with no political content, it was explained to me that, as it was a weekly show in my name, the new guidelines would apply to all and any content that I post all year round. Since those non-negotiable changes to my radio contract were made, I've ultimately found that I'm not prepared to lose my voice in social media, change who I am, or lose the ability to express the strong beliefs I hold about the political turmoil this country finds itself in. My decision has been to continue to criticise the current UK government for what it has done to the country which I love and I'm not prepared to stop. I was brought up to fight for what I believe in and I will carry on. Consequently, I have now breached the new guidelines and BBC Wales management have decided I must leave. We each must make our own decisions. I'm sad to have to leave the wonderful friends I've made at Radio Wales. I wish them and all of our listeners all the love in the world. We laughed a lot and we will miss each other dearly. But for now, another interesting chapter begins. And that article was by Steph Braun. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of November. Insipid King's Speech Slated for Abandoning Scots. A front page article written by Steph Braun. The King's Speech has been branded insipid and a farce while the Tories have been accused of abandoning Scots with their policy agenda. King Charles, who was booed on his way into Westminster by anti-monarchy protesters, set out the government's legislative plans for the upcoming session in the House of Lords on Tuesday, which included a bill to hold annual oil and gas licensing rounds. Under the new plans, the North Sea Transition Authority will invite applications for new production licences every year, which the UK government said would provide greater certainty and confidence for businesses and investors. Climate activists and green groups have condemned the move, while the speech, part of the state opening of Parliament, was noticeably bereft of any further support for those struggling with the cost of living. SNP politician Stephen Bonner, who crossed his fingers while swearing an oath to the Queen in 2019, said he refused to go into the Lords to hear the speech. Sharing a picture of King Charles delivering the speech, he said on X, formerly known as Twitter, I opted to read the King's speech rather than traipse into the Lords to hear it. A man dressed like that, talking about ways to help ease the cost of living crisis. The SNP in general was particularly displeased that no powers were transferred to Scotland to allow Holyrood to tackle the cost of living crisis, insisting that the threadbare speech showed why independence is essential. The party wanted to see the government commit to a £400 energy bill rebate, mortgage interest tax relief and action to reduce food prices. The party's economy spokesperson, Drew Hendry, said... This threadbare King's speech shows the Tories are bereft of ideas and have completely abandoned people in Scotland. While the SNP is helping families with a council tax freeze and progressive policies like the Scottish Child Payment, the Tories are offering no help at all with the cost of living and no new powers for the Scottish Parliament, showing why independence is essential to deliver economic growth and boost household incomes. SNP MSP Kalkab Stewart said that the speech was full of contradictions, pointing out a commitment to new oil and gas licences amid warm words on tackling climate change. 
Pete Wishart, meanwhile, branded the speech insipid, while Gavin Newlands deemed the event, which involves a multitude of archaic traditions, a farce. SNP MP and self-professed Republican Tommy Shepard added, It's a ragtag and bobtail of measures only, masquerading as a programme for government. Alba MP Neil Hanvey described the speech as more of the same, with Scotland's North Sea revenues paying the way, while Scots struggle to pay their heating bills. He added, Today's King's speech was completely tone-deaf to the fact that tens of thousands of millions of pounds are flowing to the UK Treasury from Scotland. Whilst across our land of energy plenty, we have Scots living in fuel poverty. Outright opposition to new development in the North Sea is daft, but the King's ransom that Scots are asked to pay to stay part of the UK is obscene. The Greens branded the announcement as a polluter's charter and a missed opportunity for advancing the renewable sector and tackling high energy bills. MSP Mark Ruskell said, The Prime Minister seems determined to follow a scorched-earth approach to our climate, and with this polluter's charter, his UK government is failing in its duty to protect people from harm. There was nothing in this speech to suggest he is taking the climate crisis seriously, but everything for oil and gas firms to be jubilant about, when the focus could have been on advancing our renewable sector. The Scottish Trade Union Congress specifically attacked the UK government's shambolic plans for minimum service rules for train operators and ambulance workers during strike action. Ministers are hoping that the legislation will come into effect before Christmas and it will ensure 40% of trains will still run on strike days. Under a law passed by Parliament earlier this year, ministers can set minimum service levels for health, fire and education services, as well as border security and nuclear decommissioning. STUC General Secretary Ross Foyer said... Workers throughout the country will be aghast at the priorities of this dying Tory government as they fail to address the growing inequality across the UK and instead turn their sights on workers. Clearly running out of ideas and in a grotesque attempt to frame this legislation as reasonable, the Tory UK government's plans for minimum service levels are a shambolic, unmitigated attack on our movement that not only undermines devolution, but undercuts our democratic right to strike. It's clear that they are absolutely running scared of the collective action of empowered workers and know fine well that their scapegoating of our movement will not last. The Scottish Government must, insofar as is possible, take a stand of non-compliance with this legislation across every sector of our workforce. Plaid Cymru's Westminster leader Liz Savile-Roberts described the King's speech as a distraction and accused the UK Government of being too concerned with culture wars. She said, This King's speech was a distraction by a desperate government. People want their politicians to focus on solutions to the UK inequality crisis, but this government is more concerned with culture war obsessions. A front-page article written by Steph Braun. The National, on Wednesday the 8th of November. Opinion. A dispiriting King's speech for a troubled United Kingdom. A column written by Stuart McIntosh. 
Let's be honest. No one usually expects much from the king's speech laying out the government's legislative priorities. Often it amounts to a shopping list, a series of dog whistles aimed at groups of voters, rather than a cohesive, comprehensive, positive platform. This year was no different. What made it perhaps more disappointing than usual is the especially perilous state the United Kingdom is in after thirteen years of Tory Brexit mistakes, austerity, misgovernment, poor leadership, economic stagnation, and decline. In this King's speech, we had no real vision, just tired platitudes, no sense of how the government could begin to solve the myriad ills that afflict this country. King Charles referenced twenty-one laws the government wants to pass. Five shoutouts to law and order concerns were uppermost in the speech. Voters, understandably angry about crime, will like some of this messaging. But of course, pledges of action are all very well. This same government is the author of twenty percent cuts in real terms to the police force since twenty ten. The reality is also of hundreds of closed courts in England and Wales, significant cuts to legal aid since 2012, and overcrowded prisons. No one is to blame for this erosion of our sense of public safety, our legal system, courts, and prisons, but Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and his cabinet colleagues. This depressing legal landscape is their creation. The speech had plenty of empty phrases and filler. This reflects the UK government's lack of ideas on how to address the serious, fundamental weaknesses in the UK economy, many of which are Brexit-related and self-inflicted open economic wounds, none of which can be admitted by the government. The government has said what it will not do: it will not build transport links for our future. It will not promulgate policies to reach a greener tomorrow, but instead roll back our goals, permit more oil drilling, which will pollute the air and undermine the achievement of legally binding climate change commitments. Continued Conservative government appears ready to march us backwards, and so shrivel our collective possibilities and opportunities. What was conspicuously lacking for a shrinking little Britain was imaginative, forward-looking plans on how the country can and should be rebuilt and rejuvenated, after years of wrong-headed austerity, which commenced in 2010 with a brief let-up during the pandemic, and is now set to start back up again. The last 13 years have provided a real-time economic experiment. Austerity as a self-flagellating exercise. In the United Kingdom, versus Keynesian spending when private sector demand collapses. In the United States, we can see and feel the results today. The United States economy is growing at 4.9 percent. The United Kingdom is growing at 0.5 percent, languishing near the very bottom of advanced economies, according to the International Monetary Fund. How badly are we doing? In 2022, Britain's per capita income stood at 45,850 US dollars, below that of the state of Mississippi, which is 46,370 US dollars. Poverty and destitution are increasing. Meanwhile, councils declare housing emergencies, like Edinburgh, and scores of towns and cities face bankruptcy as revenues shrink. 
just as demand for essential statutory services rises. UK export markets are shrinking and the outlook isn't pretty, whatever makeup is applied. The prospects for young workers are shrunken and diminished. So much for global Britain. The promised post-Brexit economic boom is a mirage, a Govian, Faragian delusion. The years since Brexit are an exercise in denial of economic realities and their negative impacts across the country, on businesses and on our livelihoods. Voters are meant to stop re-moaning about it and just keep calm and carry on. Overall, this first speech at the opening of Parliament by King Charles was a lacklustre, unimaginative last gasp of a government out of ideas, out of cash and out of policy room to manoeuvre. It addressed very few of our actual economic problems. If the current Prime Minister loses the election, as polls suggest is highly likely, rebuilding public services, the NHS, the police, our communities, local economies, our institutions and our norms will take at least a decade and probably longer. Much as the person lost and seeking directions is told by a passerby, well, I wouldn't start from here if I were you. Britain will commence the journey from a bad position and we'll have a very challenging route ahead. Let us hope that the national and evolved leaders who take up this mammoth task have greater vision and foresight than the current cabinet of underperforming, flailing figures. A column written by Stuart McIntosh, who is Executive Director of The Group of 30, an international body of financiers and academics. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of November. Scottish Council receives millions from HMRC after being taxed incorrectly. An article written by Mark McLean. Cash-strapped Dumfries and Galloway Council is to receive a bumper £2.1 million back from His Majesty's Revenue and Customs after being taxed incorrectly for the past 16 years. The refund was revealed after several councils, including Dumfries and Galloway, launched a legal challenge against HMRC for wrongly taxing the council's leisure services earnings. HMRC backed down and will now return millions backdated to 2007. A report on the matter has been produced for the Council's Finance Committee next week. It reads, Members were informed that HMRC had recently indicated that local authority leisure and sport services will now be treated as a non-business activity for VAT purposes, meaning that VAT would no longer need to be paid on income generated from these activities. Members were also informed that the backdating of this change in treatment was under review. The Council's advisers on this matter have recently indicated that HMRC has confirmed that this change in treatment can be backdated to February 2007 and that the Council is due a VAT refund relating to this period. It's anticipated that the net income to the Council will be around £2.1 million after deduction of advisers' fees. It was initially reported in August that the Council would save around £250,000 per year due to changes in taxation rules around leisure services. However, the backdated cash situation has come as a surprise and a much-needed boost for the Council coffers. 
Prudent finance bosses are now suggesting that the £2.1 million windfall is tucked away in the council's reserves due to the uncertainty about finances because of ongoing staff pay negotiations and the impact of the council tax freeze next year. It's projected that Dumfries and Galloway Council's leisure services will generate an income of nearly £1.24 million this year. Of this amount, leisure memberships will account for £848,700, admission fees will be £278,080, while general fees will generate £109,500. When VAT calculations are done, the Council will retain £247,256 that would normally be paid to HMRC. An article written by Mark McLean. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of November. Scottish man sues council over mouldy home that nearly killed me. An exclusive article written by James Walker. A Scottish man is suing Angus Council for £500,000 after his incredibly mouldy home left him with serious health issues. I nearly lost my life in hospital, said 60-year-old Hamish Izzard, who moved into the council house in the village of Forfa with his partner in 2015. He added, I was fit and active, I ate healthily and lived healthily, and the effect of this has just been catastrophic. It really has. The man is now taking Angus Council to court, claiming that, as his landlord, it is in breach of the Housing Scotland Act of 2001, which requires that the house is wind and water tight, and in all other respects reasonably fit for human habitation. The legal filing, which the National has seen, claims that the home hasn't been fit for human habitation since 2015, and that the Council is liable for Mr Izzard's illnesses since. Mr Izzard started to feel unwell from around December 2016, with a tight chest and wheezing. He saw his GP, who then gave him an inhaler and oral steroids. He was formally diagnosed with asthma in November 2018 and was admitted to Ninewells Hospital in Dundee with uncontrollable asthma and the flu. The NHS notes that having damp and mould in your home makes respiratory problems more likely, including respiratory infections and asthma. Housing charities across the UK sounded the alarm as to the danger of mould after the tragic death of two-year-old Awab Ishak in December 2020 from a respiratory condition caused by prolonged exposure to mould in his home. It saw the passage of Awab's law this year as part of the Social Housing Act, which requires landlords to fix reported hazards in social housing, such as mould, in a timely fashion, or rehouse tenants in safe accommodation. Housing is devolved in Scotland with a different regulatory framework. Mr Izzard said that his condition has deteriorated since his hospitalisation and he has had to stop working as a result, adding that his repeated pleas to the council to sort the issue or help him and his partner move elsewhere have fallen on deaf ears. Angus Council has taken some action to tackle the damp, the legal filing notes, including fixing a leaking roof in the property in 2017. The council also tried to eradicate the dampness by digging a trench beside the house and filling it with gravel and removing the central heating radiator from the bathroom. 
an expert witness report commissioned by Mr Izzard's lawyers and undertaken by Innes Aitken, a chartered building surveyor, said that the house was not habitable and that the mould growth is extensive and serious. The report went on to say that the mould was caused by condensation, not rising or penetrating dampness. The Scottish House Condition Survey for 2017 to 2019 found that Angus was the local authority with the highest average condensation rate in Scotland, at 16%. Poorly heated or ventilated homes can experience condensation, and the way a resident uses their home can also affect condensation levels. Innes Aitken said that they were of the opinion that Mr Izzard had not done anything or failed to do anything that they would expect from any normal local authority tenant when it comes to managing condensation. The report added that Angus Council has had a considerable amount of time to either resolve this issue or decant Hamish Izzard to another available property. They have failed to do either. Mr Izzard said he has also suffered with his mental health as a result of the ordeal and has been prescribed antidepressants. We have been put through eight years of hell from this council and it continues to this day, he said. Housing charity Shelter said that they couldn't comment on the case specifically but called on Hamza Youssef to declare a housing emergency. The director of Shelter Scotland, Alison Watson, said... Mould, damp and awful conditions are one aspect of the housing emergency that is devastating lives across the country. Everyone in Scotland should have somewhere safe, secure and affordable to call home, but right now that isn't the case for many. That's why we're calling on the First Minister to declare a housing emergency in Scotland, backed up with a plan to end it. We need to see action now. Stephen Forsyth, a partner at MML Law Dundee, is representing Mr Izzard. He said, Mould has a devastating impact on people. On that basis, we will be pursuing this for our client as vigorously as possible. Aditi Jahangir, Secretary of Tenants Union Living Rent, said, We all deserve to live in mould and damp-free homes. Tenants are being forced to accept mould as part of their living experience while being told by landlords that it's their fault. We need legislation that puts the responsibility firmly back where it belongs, at the door of the landlords. If England can legislate against mould and damp, so can Scotland. Scotland is crying out for legislation similar to Awab's law introduced in England. Without government action, mould and damp will continue to wreak havoc with people's health and homes. This government needs to legislate to force landlords to eradicate damp and mould in their properties, or else tenants will continue to pay the price. A Scottish government spokesperson said, Scotland's social rented homes have improved over a number of years to meet the Scottish housing quality standard, with more tenants living in warm, safe and dry homes. All social landlords, including local authorities, are already required to meet the Scottish Housing Quality Standard, which requires properties to be free from damp, have adequate ventilation and to be suitably insulated, and they are required to ensure any requests for repairs are carried out in a timely fashion. Compliance is monitored by the Scottish Housing Regulator. 
The regulator and Scotland's leading housing organisations have published guidance on how the social sector can respond to damp and mould issues in a timely and proactive manner in order to improve outcomes for tenants. If landlords fail to comply, tenants can escalate complaints to the Scottish Public Services Ombudsman. An Angus Council spokesperson said, We are aware of these complaints and will not make any further comment at this time. An exclusive article written by James Walker. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of November. Train drivers wanted for scenic Scottish Highlands route. An article written by Steph Braun. Train drivers are needed on the picturesque West Highland Line. Scotrail has said the staff would be based in Fort William and would regularly travel on the line that connects the town with Malig, Glasgow and Oban. From Glasgow, the line splits at Crinlarich and takes passengers either past Lahore to Oban or over Rannoch Moor onto Fort William and to Malig. The jobs have a starting salary of £32,968, but could rise to £58,028 once qualified. The successful candidate must be at least 20 when they begin training and will need to pass certain medical examinations, but no prior experience is required. Locations along the line include Glenfinnan, whose viaduct became famous through the Warner Brothers' Harry Potter films, and Karawa, dubbed the highest station above sea level and the most remote in the UK. The West Highland Line was voted the top rail journey in the world by readers of independent travel magazine Vanderlust in 2009. Job website High Jobs, which is carrying out the recruitment on ScotRail's behalf, described the driver vacancies as dream jobs. An article written by Steph Braun. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of November Work plans submitted for an island wind farm An article written by Lucy Garcia A planning application has been submitted for onshore works required to deliver renewable energy to homes and businesses across Scotland from a new multi-billion pound wind farm off Orkney. The West of Orkney Wind Farm has submitted an onshore planning application to the Highland Council, which details information on proposed cable landfalls on the North Caithness coast, the project substation at or near Spittal in Caithness, and the underground cables which will extend around 20 kilometres and connect to the substation. Last year, the West of Orkney Wind Farm secured the development rights to an area of seabed from Crown Estate Scotland in the highly competitive Scott Wind leasing process to bring forward an offshore wind farm 30 kilometres west of the Orkney mainland. Development manager Jack Farnham said, The West of Orkney Wind Farm is a multi-billion pound project which will deliver significant social and economic benefits to the north of Scotland. The onshore connection is a vital component of the project and will enable us to export clean electricity sufficient to power around 2 million homes. We've taken on board local communities' feedback through a series of public events. The substation will be carefully screened by landscaping and native planting. Once operational, the substation will only be lit when necessary. We'll continue to work closely with the council and local communities through the development process. 
the west of Orkney wind farm will have up to 125 turbines on fixed foundations, an expected capacity of around 2 gigawatts, and aims to deliver first power in 2029. In October, the project reached a major milestone by submitting comprehensive offshore consent applications to Scottish ministers. It's the first Scott Wind project to have applied for offshore consent, doing so only 20 months after being awarded the site. An article written by Lucy Garcia. The National News on Wednesday the 8th of November. Family of Captain Tom told to demolish unauthorised spa pool. An article written by Ross Hunter. The family of Captain Sir Tom Moore has been ordered to demolish an unauthorised spa pool block at their home within three months. As a charity commission investigation into the charitable foundation set up by the veterans' family continues, Hannah Ingram Moore and her husband Colin lost an appeal against an order to remove the Captain Tom Foundation building in the grounds of the property at Marston Moritain in Bedfordshire following a hearing last month. In her report, Inspector Diane Fleming concluded that the actual removal of the building should take no more than three months, after the appellants argued it would take a year to comply with the order. The L-shaped building was given the green light, but after the couple applied for permission in 2021, the planning authority refused the subsequent retrospective application in 2022 for a larger C-shaped building containing a spa pool. After Central Bedfordshire Council issued an enforcement notice in July requiring the demolition of the unauthorised building, the planning inspectorate has dismissed the family's appeal. In her written decision, the inspector said, I accept that the appellant's intentions were laudable, however it's not been demonstrated in any detail how all of this would work in practice. In the absence of any substantiated information, I find the suggested public benefit would therefore not outweigh the great weight to be given to the harm to the heritage asset. During a hearing in October, chartered surveyor James Painter for the appellants said the spa pool had the opportunity to offer rehabilitation sessions for elderly people in the area. Ms Fleming's written decision concluded that the scale and massing of the building had resulted in harm to the Grade 2 listed Old Rectory. This is the family's home. The foundation is currently the subject of an investigation by the Charity Commission amid concerns about its management and independence from Captain Tom's family. The charity watchdog opened a case into the foundation shortly after the 100-year-old died in 2021 and launched its inquiry in June last year. Scott Stemp, representing Ms Ingram Moore and her husband, said at the appeal hearing that the foundation is to be closed down following an investigation by the Charity Commission. Sir Tom Moore raised £38.9 million for the NHS, including gift aid, by walking 100 laps of his garden before his 100th birthday at the height of the first national COVID-19 lockdown in April 2020. He was knighted by the late Queen during a unique open-air ceremony at Windsor Castle in the summer of that year. He died in February 2021. An article written by Ross Hunter. The National Politics on Wednesday the 8th of November. 
Scottish Government officially ditches HPMA plans. An article written by Ross Hunter. The Scottish Government has officially confirmed that highly protected marine areas, or HPMAs, will not be ruled out in Scotland. In June, Cabinet Secretary for Net Zero and Just Transition Mary McAllen announced that the proposal to roll out HPMAs in 10% of Scotland's seas by 2026 would not be progressed. HPMAs, if implemented, would have put an end to the vast majority of human activities occurring within their borders in an attempt to help boost biodiversity in Scotland's marine habitats. Fishing, aquaculture, oil and gas exploration and offshore wind infrastructure would all have been banned within HPMAs. Before announcing which areas were set to be designated as HPMAs, the Scottish Government undertook a consultation with the public. However, despite broad support from environmental and conservation charities, many MSPs, including some within the SNP, objected to the plans due to concern from constituents about its impact on fishing and coastal communities. During the SNP leadership campaign, Kate Forbes said that she would scrap the policy completely, while Fergus Ewing ripped up the legislation in the chamber of the Scottish Parliament. Now Ms McCallan has once again confirmed that the policy will not be progressed, as the results of the consultation are published, with no plans to roll out HPMAs in any of Scotland's waters. Speaking in Holyrood on Tuesday, she said, in response to the findings of the consultation and as I set out in Parliament earlier this year, the proposal to implement highly protected marine areas across 10% of Scotland's seas by 2026 will not be progressed. My thanks go to everyone who took the time to respond to the consultation and to those who have continued to engage constructively with me and other ministers over the summer. The government is firmly committed to protecting our marine environment and will continue to work closely with coastal communities and industries to protect Scotland's seas for the benefit of all. As a priority, this includes completing management measures for our existing Marine Protected Area, or MPA, network and protecting our priority marine features. I'm determined to protect our oceans in a way that is fair and to find a way forward that ensures our seas remain a source of prosperity for the nation, especially in our coastal and island communities. Phil Taylor, Director of Conservation Charity Open Seas, said, This consultation shows the majority of people want to see our seas protected from the most damaging forms of fishing and support given to sustainable fishing methods operating in our communities. It's heartening to see many respondents calling for the Scottish Government to refocus by safeguarding marine habitats inside protected areas and throughout our coastal zone from the destructive impacts of activities like scallop dredging. Scottish SNP Green Ministers are already delaying on commitments and failing their legal duties to protect priority marine features, so must take more urgent action on this. If we look after the seabed and reinstate protections for nursery and spawning grounds as priority, it will be a huge long-term investment in our country's environment, jobs and the resilience of our rural economy. Callum Duncan, the Head of Conservation at the Marine Conservation Society Scotland, added that communities must be put at the centre of nature recovery. He told The National... 
Healthy seas are at the very heart of the industry and culture of Scotland. Yet assessments by the Scottish Government, as well as internationally, show that our oceans are struggling. We urgently need a credible, transformative pathway to set nature at sea on course for recovery by 2030. Scientists recognise that areas of strict protection have a crucial role to play in this. Done right, with communities at the heart of the process, they can help boost local livelihoods by increasing marine life by up to five times, benefiting low-impact fishermen and providing jobs in tourism. Government must secure this win-win approach in a fair and just way. An article written by Ross Hunter The National Politics On Wednesday, the 8th of November Scottish Government open to fireworks ban after bonfire night chaos An article written by Adam Robertson Scotland's Justice Secretary has said she is open to discussion on a ban on the sale of fireworks to the public following widespread disorder on bonfire night. Nine emergency workers were injured on Sunday as police and firefighters clashed with young people with fireworks and petrol bombs. The worst disorder took place in the Nidri area of Edinburgh, where police say around 50 youths were involved on Sunday on Hay Avenue in the city in a repeat of scenes from last year in the same area. Speaking to BBC Radio Scotland, Angela Constance said she would be open to a ban on fireworks sales, although Scotland does not currently hold the powers to do so. I'm open-minded about it, open to discussion, she said. It's not within our powers for an outright ban, but open to discussion. Her comments come in response to Edinburgh City Council leader Cammy Day, who said something would have to change before someone is seriously, seriously injured. Speaking on Monday, First Minister Hamza Youssef, who criticised the thuggish and reckless behaviour from those involved, said he would consider such a move if it was within the Scottish Government's powers. He added but it shouldn't require the government to stop people throwing fireworks at fire officers, stopping them hurling bricks at our police officers. You don't need legislation to know that that is unacceptable. Former Children and Young People's Commissioner Tom Bailey said on the same programme on Tuesday that cuts to youth services in deprived areas could have been a factor in the disorder. But Miss Constance said... I would dispute that, but the point that Mr Bailey makes about prevention is an important one, and this government continues to invest in preventative services. The Justice Secretary pointed to the Cash Back for Communities programme, which redirects funds seized by police under the Proceeds of Crime Act to youth services and the Violence Reduction Framework as such investments. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National, Thursday the 9th of November. Scottish Hotel named Best of the Year at Top Awards Ceremony by Adam Robertson. A Scottish hotel is celebrating after winning a prestigious award. Glen App Castle, a 21-bedroom hotel at Ballantrae near Girvan in Ayrshire, said it was delighted to announce it had been awarded the Hotel of the Year accolade by POB Hotels, a luxury hotel marketing group. The hotel had featured in the BBC's documentary series Amazing Hotels, Life Beyond the Lobby. 
The Ayrshire Hotel said the accolade had been announced at POB Hotel's annual conference this week and that it's awarded to a hotel that has achieved the highest levels of hospitality and has a proven track record in creating exceptional guest experiences, exceeding standards in POB inspections. Managing Director of Glenapp Castle said, We are over the moon to be recognised by POB Hotels as Hotel of the Year. From the restaurant to the gardens and housekeeping, Glenapp Castle is made up of hard-working and determined teams who are true hospitality professionals. We are honoured to be awarded this accolade and I am really proud of our exceptional Glenapp Castle team. A statement from the hotel said, POB Hotels, the exclusive collection of independent luxury hotels across the British Isles, meticulously assesses its member hotels through an annual mystery guest inspection process, culminating in the prestigious recognition of three special categories. These awards are unveiled with great anticipation at the annual conference, serving as a remarkable opportunity for members to not only celebrate their achievements, but also inspire one another. Glenapp Castle is set in 110 acres of private estate. This article is by Adam Robertson. From the National, Thursday the 9th of November, from the news section. Sweets sold in the UK recalled due to choking hazard. Searle. Several varieties of sweets sold across the UK have been recalled due to a choking hazard. Coco Candy and KGR Distribution are recalling three flavours of Coco Candy Rolling Candy because of the possibility that the rolling ball may detach, posing a choking risk. The impacted products are all 30 millilitres in size and include strawberry, Tutti Frutti and Cola flavoured rolling candy. A spokesperson for the Food Standards Agency warned anyone who had already purchased the products not to eat them. Instead, they should be returned for a full refund. The Food Standards Agency said there is a possibility that the rolling ball may detach, which could cause a choking hazard. Coco Candy and KGR Distribution are recalling these products. If you have bought any of these products, do not eat them. Instead, please contact KGR Distribution for a refund at email address recall at kgrdistribution.com or visit their website. The products have already been recalled in the USA, with the US Consumer Product Safety Commission saying CPSC, Asaf Gida, DBA Coco Candy of Turkey and KGR Distribution Corporation of Passaic, New Jersey are announcing the recall of about 145,800 Cocoa Candy Rolling Candy in various flavours. 
The candy's rolling ball can dislodge and become trapped in a child's throat, posing a fatal choking risk. The Consumer Product Safety Commission has received one report of a seven-year-old girl who choked and died after the candy's rolling ball dislodged and became trapped in her throat in New York in April 2023. Consumers should stop using the recalled rolling candy immediately, take it away from children and contact KGR Distribution Corp for a refund. This recall involves cocoa candy's rolling candy consisting of two fluid ounces in various flavours, including sour strawberry, sour tutti-frutti and sour cola. What is a product recall? If there is a problem with a food product that means it should not be sold, then it might be withdrawn or taken off the shelves or recalled when customers are asked to return the product. The FSA issues product withdrawal information notices and product recall information notices to let consumers and local authorities know about problems associated with food. In some cases, a food alert for action is issued. This provides local authorities with details of specific actions to be taken on behalf of consumers. This article was by Joshua Searle. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review. Tell your friends about our service.